The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It does not constitute legal or other professional advice. No one connected with this podcast can be responsible for your use of the information discussed. The views expressed are those of the podcaster and do not represent the opinions of any other person or entity. These views are subject to change, revision, and rethinking at any time. Welcome to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing, a podcast blending the demands of the book with the rulings from the bench through the lens of the bag. Police officers with a solid understanding of the law and their legal powers are more confident, competent, and effective. Each and every episode will examine a legal issue in policing by reviewing current Canadian criminal case law from coast to coast to coast. Be prepared to uncover a legal lesson that will improve your decision making. Now let's leap in. Hello everyone, my name is Mike Novakowski, your podcast host, and you are listening to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing. Recently, I was able to go on one of the most, if not the most grueling hikes I have ever done. It was in Palm Springs, California, known as the Skyline Trail. It is about 10 miles in length and part of the Cactus to Clouds trek. When I was about two miles into the hike, I came upon a sign posted by the Palm Springs Mounted Police Search and Rescue. Some of it read, and I quote, Extreme caution, 10 steep miles, no water, entire route. Rattlesnakes, scorpions, ticks. Route disappears and is difficult to follow, end quote. The sign reminded its readers that people have died on this hike and encouraged you not to be the next death by knowing your limitations and being prepared. Now, I didn't see any snakes or scorpions, but plenty of lizards and a few birds. What really made this challenging for me was not only the elevation gain, over 8,000 feet, but the heat. When I started the hike at 6.30 a.m., it was 23 degrees Celsius. By noon, it was 37 degrees at the base of the hike, and the high for the day reached 39 degrees. Of course, there was some relief from the heat as the higher I got, it was a bit cooler, but still hot by British Columbia standards. I even came upon some snow as I approached the top. Unfortunately, this snow obstructed some of the trail, making the trek a bit more difficult. I did make it to the Palm Springs Aerial Tramway at an elevation of 8,516 feet. I then took a 2.5-mile, 10-minute tram ride down to a parking lot. It was a fantastic experience. Now on with today's episode. In the Canadian legal system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups. The police who investigate crime and the Crown Council who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. Well, this will be at least one of their stories. But before I get into the case for today, I think a few other points are worth mentioning. Although the police and the Crown are separate and independent, they are interdependent. While they have separate responsibilities in the criminal justice system, they play complementary roles. The police are responsible mainly for the investigation of offenses, while Crown Counsel is responsible for the prosecution of the offenses. But they must inevitably work collaboratively. Cooperation and effective consultation between the police and prosecutors is essential. As two separate actors, however, the relationship is not hierarchical. They both enjoy independence at their respective stage of the process, and maintaining this independence protects against the misuse of both investigative and prosecutorial powers. Now for a personal experience. When I was a young police officer, I would often use my discretionary time. That's the time when I was not on a call to troll for impaired drivers. Of course, like many of you, I would fish around the usual watering holes, bars, pubs, and nightclubs. Back before social media was popular for hooking up with people, nightclubs and cabarets were the place to socialize and in the process consume copious amounts of liquor, then drive. The clubs back then where I police had some curious names, such as Night Magic, Mardi Gras, Animals, the Luxor, and City Limits. The doormen were massive, often buffed up on steroids. Friday and Saturday nights were adrenaline pumping, especially on a full moon. Fights were common and walkthroughs by the police just as common. 
So too were impaired drivers leaving these establishments, particularly at closing time. I was of the view that I would much rather prevent death and serious injury, or at least lessen the carnage on our highways, by detecting and removing impaired drivers from public roads by screening them at a traffic stop rather than at the scene of an accident after the damage was done. Not only did roadside stops ensure the safety of the drivers themselves, but also their passengers and other users of the highway. And I think most people would prefer the police catch the drinking driver at the roadside and not after a collision has occurred and the damage done. One day I remember going to court on an impaired driving case where I was the arresting officer. I had received a law enforcement notification, or LENS as they are known in British Columbia, to attend the impaired driving and over .08 trial. As per the norm, the trial was scheduled to commence at 9.30 a.m. and my pre-trial interview with the prosecutor was scheduled for 9 a.m. At least that is what the notice said. But as usual, the prosecutor was assigned several files that morning and all witnesses were scheduled for the interview at 9 a.m. Police officers were often the last to speak with the prosecutor as civilian witnesses received priority because of their inexperience with the legal system. When I met the prosecutor that morning, she asked me if I had ever testified at an impaired driving trial before. I said I had and she said, good, because this is my first one. So I will ask you a few questions about your occupation and then you can run with it. I won't interrupt. Although I expected more from the prosecutor, I realized they too can be inexperienced and I figured no one knew the case better than I did. After all, I lived it. I stopped the vehicle. I made the observations and I arrested the driver. And I knew enough about the law and how the courts operated that I felt confident that I could testify to a narrative that met all the legal requirements. I was aware that times were very important in these types of cases, such as the time of the stop, the time my grounds were formed, the time of the breath demand, the time I provided the driver with a Section 10B charter warning, the time of transport to the police station, the time of arrival at the police station, the time of consultation with counsel, the time of presentation to the breath tech, and the time the samples were taken. I made sure I had an accurate record of these times. They were important and I knew it. Back then, criminal code demand sections used language like forthwith and as soon as practicable. While the Section 10 Charter Preamble uses the words on arrest or detention, which indicates a point in time, and Section 10A uses the word promptly, and Section 10B the words without delay. All of these words are temporal in nature. They relate to time. It doesn't take a genius to know that a defense lawyer will often argue delay, delay, delay. If a delay in performing an investigative task is unjustified, such as when making a breath demand, or when advising of the right to counsel or providing a reasonable opportunity for consultation with a lawyer, a charter breach will often follow which opens the door to a Section 24-2 evidence inadmissibility argument. So this all leads me to a case cited as R.V. Pike, a 2023 decision of the Newfoundland and Labrador Provincial Court. A link to it is in the episode notes. In this case, the Crown called two witnesses, a bartender and a police officer. The bartender said she served the accused several drinks to the point that she thought he was intoxicated. When he left the bar and drove away in a car, the bartender called the police. She testified she made this call between 11.30 p.m. and 12-ish. She also provided the police with the car's license plate number. As for the police officer, he started his evidence by saying he had been on duty working the night shift. He received a call alleging that the accused had left the bar and was driving his car while under the influence of alcohol. The officer located the car on a street, but it was not occupied. Later, the officer said he saw the car again on a different street and conducted a traffic stop. 
The officer said that he smelled the odor of alcohol in the accused's breath, who he identified as Adam Pike using a Newfoundland and Labrador driver's license. Pike was slurring his speech. An approved screening device demand was given, and on Pike's fifth attempt at providing a sample, he blew a fail. Pike was arrested, advised of his right to counsel, and was transported to the police station. Two tests were subsequently taken by a qualified breath technician, and each test registered 190 milligrams per cent, or 0.190. Pike was charged with operating a conveyance while impaired and having a blood alcohol concentration equal to or in excess of 80 milligrams per cent within two hours after ceasing to operate a conveyance. The judge referred to this offense as over 79. Why over 79 and not over 80? I think it's because in 2018 the law, as it was found in Section 253B, was changed from operating a motor vehicle with a blood alcohol concentration that exceeds 80 milligrams of alcohol in 100 milliliters of blood to Section 320.14 sub 1B, which creates an offense of having a blood alcohol concentration that is equal to or exceeds 80 milligrams of alcohol in 100 milliliters of blood within two hours after ceasing to operate a conveyance. With respect to the two-hour limit after operation, there's an exception which you can check out for yourself. But back to the facts of the case. They sound pretty straightforward, right? Well, the judge went on to point out that in Canadian criminal law, every person accused of having committed an offense is presumed innocent and the burden of proof as to guilt is always on the crown and never shifts to the accused. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt does not require proof to an absolute certainty, but it is much closer to absolute certainty than to the civil standard of a balance of probabilities. If the Crown cannot prove the alleged offense was committed by the accused, then the presumption of innocence prevails and the charge will be dismissed. So what happened next in this case? Remember what I said earlier about times? The only evidence of time came from the bartender who said that the accused left the bar between 11.30pm and 12ish. During the trial, Crown Counsel failed to elicit many of the important times. For example, the prosecutor did not ask the police officer when the samples were taken. Section 320.31 sub 1b of the criminal code requires proof that samples of breath were taken at least 15 minutes apart. There was even no evidence when the officer received the call about the accused leaving the bar. The judge presumed it was after the bartender had called the police, which only makes sense. Why would the officer get the call about the accused leaving the bar if the bartender had not yet called it in? Regardless, the point is the times and evidence were woefully deficient. Here is how the judge described it. Quote, we do not know when the accused was arrested. We do not know when they left the roadside, when they arrived at the police station, when the observation period began or ended, or when the breath tests were carried out. We do not know these times because Crown Counsel did not ask the witness any questions about when these steps had been taken by the police, end quote. Because the prosecutor did not ask, nor did the officer testify on his own about the timing of events, there was no evidence of important intervals such as when Pike was detained, when he failed the roadside screening test, when the observation period began and ended, or when the breath tests were conducted by the qualified breath technician. Plus, Section 320.14 sub 1b requires proof of when driving ceased, a time which the prosecution failed to elicit during the trial. To top it all off, Section 320.32 sub 1 allows a certificate of a qualified breath technician to be received as evidence of the facts alleged in the certificate without proof of the signature or the official character of the person who signed the certificate. 
While the qualified breath technician did prepare a certificate, the prosecutor failed to tender it during the trial and did not call the technician to testify. Here is what the judge said, quote, We do know that there were two tests conducted by a qualified breath technician and that the results of each test was 190 milligrams per cent. However, since the certificate was not tendered in evidence by the Crown, and since the qualified breath technician did not testify, we do not know when any of these tests took place, end quote. As a consequence, there was no evidence before the judge as to when the breath samples were taken. Because the Crown failed to lead the required evidence, both charges were dismissed. So what can we learn from all of this? I think there are lessons for both the police and prosecutors. Number one, don't take any case for granted. Statistics Canada reported there were more than 71,000 incidents of impaired driving in 2021, resulting in more than 38,000 people being charged. Even though some crimes are common, like impaired driving, each case will rise or fall on the evidence as presented. Make sure you understand the legal requirements for proving the case and speak to those requirements as you testify. Understand that a court will proceed step by step with the interactions of the police and the accused driver from the initial stop onwards to determine whether the officers stayed within their authority based on the information lawfully obtained as the situation developed. And times events occurred matter. Number two, sometimes the Crown will fail to lead crucial evidence. If you are a police officer and know something was missed, try to squeeze it in during your testimony. If you are testifying to making a breath demand or arrest, tell the judge when you made the demand or arrest. Volunteer it. Don't wait for the question. You don't need to be asked when it happened. If you're already in the process of explaining that something did happen, give the timing of it. And number three, I don't know why the prosecutor didn't elicit the key times from the officer. Prosecutors are entitled to exercise discretion and make tactical decisions in what witnesses to call and what questions to ask. But more comprehensive evidence needed to be adduced in this case. And it seems to me this was obvious, not only to the judge, but it should also have been obvious to the prosecutor and the officer involved. Case law is rife with examples where issues of timing have dominated the legal arguments, especially in impaired driving offenses. Prosecutors need to exercise careful judgment in presenting their case. They must decide which witnesses to call and what evidence to tender. But sometimes, as in this case, they may miss the mark. If you were testifying in a similar case, would you have recognized the importance of such things as the timing of your stop, your grounds, ASD testing, and the taking of the breath samples? If you did recognize the need for this evidence, would you have laid these times out in your testimony without having to be asked about it? Could you have filled the gap in the Crown's case without prompting and propped up the case for the prosecution? Are you switched on enough about the facts of your case and the laws that relates to your investigative techniques and evidence-gathering processes? If you aren't, maybe you should be. After all, the responsibility for law enforcement lies on you, and you must carry out your duties in accordance with the law, the law to which you are answerable. If you think this podcast would interest others, please share it. And if you have a topic you would like discussed in a future episode, you can email me at legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. That's legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. Or maybe you feel like providing me with some feedback. Either way, I would love to hear from you. And remember, be careful what you practice. You might get good at it. Be smart and stay safe.